Please rise for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 19 through 23. Hear now God's word. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Allow me to set the table a bit for today's sermon with three things. The first is very brief. But I want to point out that today's sermon will be a transition from the Easter story back to the book of Acts where we paused after February the 27th. So we kind of backed up, uh, went back to the story, of course, of the crucifixion and resurrection, and we've been talking about that for a few weeks. We'll continue to do that today, but this will transition us back to the book of Acts where we left off. Second, I want to say something about the purpose of, of the purpose of preaching. There is an uh, essential place in the church for teaching the content of the Bible. It's what we call biblical theology. We want to know about the Bible, the text itself, its history, and all the things that go into that. Second uh, Timothy 2:15 says, "Be diligent to present yourself approved of God, a worker." who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to be careful with the Bible. We need to say what it says and not say something else or or something in addition. This is the foundation of understanding God's word, and these are the doctrines that we, as Paul told Timothy, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The application of that teaching, particularly by pastors, involves what Paul tells Timothy, involves convincing, correcting, and exhorting. This is the primary work of preaching. We can analyze the plant in the laboratory, and we should. We take it apart. We look at its constituent components and their functions. We may cut it apart to look at the roots and the stem and the leaves and the flowers and all the various things. but uh, And we can analyze that plant through anatomy, dissection, taxonomy, description, and so forth. But ultimately, that should lead us back to the field where the living plant lives to see it in all of its beauty and all of its glory and to see it in its real-life context. And so the pastor's study is important. The Word of God, uh, but the Word of God is living and powerful. The sermons of the Bible apply the Word of God by calling people to some kind of action. It calls us to repent, to believe, to follow, to go, and to grow. 
So that's just a preface about preaching. Third, the Bible teaching is an, teaches us an optimistic eschatology. That is, it's optimistic about the future, about the victory of Jesus. I believe it is post-millennial in its perspective. The good guys win and the bad guys lose. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 10, 12-13, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are all made his footstool. Romans 16, 20, The benediction and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The nations have been promised as an inheritance to Jesus Christ. So in our story here, Jesus has risen from the dead, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And what does that mean? And I want to take the time this morning and preface of today's sermon to read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Think about the world out there. It's opposition to Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Jesus saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. We see this conflict set up. Jesus is king, right? Not just king, he's king of kings. And the, and the kings that he's king of don't like that. They don't want him to be their king. And so it says, so as they have this, this conspiracy, if you will, to resist the kingship of Jesus, to resist God's word and his rule, to be their own God. Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens, who's that? Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the throne of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. So the Father says to the Son, Do you want the nations? Then I'll give them to you. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. 
The great commission of Jesus to his disciples was to baptize and make disciples of the nations. I could go on for a long time citing passage after passage that teach us unequivocally that there is victory in Jesus, not just in our hearts, but in the world. I really do think the kingdom of God is at work like leaven. And when I see our own current events, when I see things like the invasion of Ukraine, I think about what God has done before and what he has promised to do again. Hear these words from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to... Is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people, people's labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this leads us to today's text. I want you to remember the context. Just a few days earlier, it appeared that all was lost. Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and the disciples were hiding in fear. They believed they were next. The whole ministry of Jesus seemed to have been a lost cause. And then the angel had declared to the women who came to the tomb of Jesus. He's not here. He is risen. And everything's about to change. The resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story. It is simply the beginning of the new creation. And you and I are part of that new creation. And it's going to take a little longer before they can clearly see the broad implications of the resurrection. But Jesus didn't waste any time implementing the next phase of his mission and ministry. There was and there still is work to be done. On the day of the resurrection, that evening, Jesus appeared before his disciples and he commissioned them with a task. In Matthew 28, we read about that, what we call the Great Commission. This was the hiding, shivering band of disciples. They were as unlikely to turn the world upside down as you and I are. This indeed appeared to be an impossible mission. But just as the Creator breathed life into Adam, so too Jesus in this text breathes life into this new creation. The kingdom had begun. The king had risen. He would soon be enthroned. And it was now time for the regular work of his kingdom to progress The seed had fallen into the ground, and now it was going to sprout and bear much fruit. The mission would employ the apostles and disciples, and this mission also had us in mind. We are in the story.
Involvement is an understatement. Following Christ is not a spectator sport. We are not simply reading a story. We are in the story. Jesus has no interest in part-time or weekend followers. Again, the mission appears to be impossible. An unlikely band of followers are about to be commissioned to take the mission of Jesus to the whole world. Seriously. A handful of people are being commissioned to conquer the world in the name of Jesus, the King. These men's so-called leader has just been publicly crucified and buried. Neither the Romans nor the Jews were in any mood to hear anything that the followers of Jesus had to say. They were on the run, basically. That's why in Matthew 28, they're secretly meeting where they're meeting for fear of the Jews. Moreover, a risen leader didn't seem to make the Jews any more receptive to the message. And thus, the disciples in John 20, after the resurrection, are still afraid. Now, this is right at the resurrection. So let's back up. Prior to the crucifixion, let's talk about phase one of the mission of Jesus. Everything converges at the final scene in which Jesus who everyone knows is about to be killed. He's on trial, right? He's been arrested. He announces God's kingdom before Pilate, Caesar's representative. Here's the Roman Empire. What happens in John 18? My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. Standing over against the claim of Jesus, Israel's official leaders declared that we have no king but Caesar. In the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, then, we have a showdown between two kings. We still have that same showdown, by the way. So the climax of the gospel, and for John, the climax of Israel's entire story, is the paradoxical mocking enthronement of Jesus on the cross. That's why they put a crown of thorns on his head. Oh, you're the king, are you? Let's show you what we'll do to your king. We'll strip him and beat him and spit on him and nail him to a cross and put him on public display. Let's go ahead and give him a crown too. Then we hear Jesus' clear and final word on the cross. It's finished. This first act in the story has now been completed. The story of creation, the story of God's covenant with Israel, and now the new creation can begin, and it does so immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. And the next act in the story can be launched as the disciples are sent out into the world, equipped with God's Spirit. And this is how Israel's story has reached its goal and now can bear fruit in the whole world. So Jesus came on a mission and he left us with what seems to be mission impossible. 
1 Timothy 1, 15-16, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, at least three things are seen in this summary of the mission of Jesus. First, the saving work of Jesus is exclusively for sinners. He did not call the righteous to repentance. Rather, those who were ready to acknowledge that they were, in fact, sinners. And I'll ask you today if that includes you. Good people need no gospel. Good people need no Savior. And so if you're even pretty good, then the message of Jesus is not for you. Our message is, our message is for bad people and for broken people. Robert Capon made this statement, You can fold up spiritually, morally, or intellectually and still be safe because at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection and the life, that makes you his cup of tea. Second, the work of saving sinners has as its central goal the removal of sin. This is not a case of the common cold. This is a terminal illness. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. And sin is what separates us from God. And being separated from God is death. Sin is what causes all the conflict, all the turmoil, all the hatred in the world, and the removal of sin removes the separation and the conflict. Thus, the forgiveness of sins and sinners is the work of the gospel. We need to not be ashamed of that. I am, Paul marches into Rome when it was illegal to preach the gospel, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He wasn't worried about what the Jews thought or the Greeks thought or anybody else thought. He had a message. As a result, others would be able to see how it all works. The fact that this chief of sinners had been converted and changed and people knew, who knew about it could see it. And Jesus, as Jesus prepares to ascend to his throne and the true, to the true tabernacle, his people will take up the task of incarnation, incarnation, of embodying or representing him on earth. He has stormed the beach, and now his people, you and I, are the occupying forces. He's at headquarters. He's directing things. And there's still work to done, be done. And he's not simply saving people to take them to heaven. He's called us, he's called you to participate in the work of his kingdom. He transforms you. He equips you. He empowers you through his resurrection. Together we bring his glory to the earth by showing the world what he can do. All this is missionary work. The Holy Spirit is given not simply so that God can redeem, that God's redeemed people may be blessed with His presence and love through the, uh, uh, though that certainly follows, 
But more than that, we are called to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus so that we may be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. We are the body of Christ. We represent him. And each of us are called to be missionaries. Now, Jesus doesn't simply commission his disciples, including us, to go save the world. He also gives us, he gives the church what she needs to do the job. You say, well, we're not able. Well, the disciples weren't able either. Where were they? They were shivering in their boots, hiding out. This should move us to recall the moments when God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2. This, where Jesus is now going to breathe on his disciples. It's a new creation. God breathed life into the nostrils of the newly formed man and that he made out of the dust of the ground, and now Jesus is doing that with his disciples. He breathes the spirit of life into his followers, and thus there's a new creation. And we'll read later that it is, in fact, the church who, uh, to which he has given gifts for the equipping of the saints the work of ministry or service. So the church is the bride of Christ. She is his helper who submits to her husband in submission. She comes under his mission to carry that mission forward in conjunction with him. What, uh, What was one of the chief objectives of husband and wife? What was and is? Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth with what? Godly offspring. Isn't that what the gospel does? The Spirit is the one who enables the church to extend the work of the kingdom. And this will be seen both in personal and corporate transformation. So the work of the Spirit is the necessary byproduct of that calling. If you're not at work for Christ's kingdom, that is a good indication that there's nothing in your tank. To be filled with the Spirit is to be moved. Phase two, the mission of Jesus. The second phase of the mission impossible of Jesus is the implementation and expansion of phase one. Jesus came to save sinners. Now he's going to expand this operation. What started in Nazareth and Galilee is about to spread out. In just a few days after Easter, Jesus appears again. And this is what he's going to tell his disciples. This is what leads us back to the book of Acts, the very opening chapter in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, who again are gathered in a room, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the outline for the book of Acts. He sets before them the mission of an ever-widening circle of gospel influence. Perhaps they remembered his parable where he said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And so in the next few days, thousands would hear the gospel and receive Christ and come into the church, and that circle continues to expand geographically and throughout history right down to this time and this place. God's plan had been achieved in the work of Christ, and now he was calling us to accomplish, uh, to implement 
the accomplished work of Jesus. There's all the difference in the world between something being achieved and something being implemented. The composer achieves the writing of the music and the performers implement it. The clockmaker designs and builds the clock and the owner now has to set the right time and keep it wound. Jesus has accomplished the defeat of death and has begun the work of new creation. Jesus' mission to Israel is reaching its climax in his death and resurrection and thus it is to be implemented by his disciples in a mission to the world. That's why they needed the Holy Spirit, Jesus' breath, God's breath, to enable them to do the impossible mission that they could otherwise never dream of doing. They couldn't feed the 5,000, but he could. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses, through us, me and you, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. He has us scattered all over this city and beyond. And we're to take that aroma of the, of the gospel wherever we go so that everybody who's around us says, what's that smell? That's lovely. I want some of that. His, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And then Paul asked, who's sufficient for this? How could we be the ones doing this? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So it turns out that this mission is not impossible. Paul, 20 years later, asks again, who is sufficient for these things? And he answers that. And we have such a trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think anything is being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but but the Spirit gives life. He, like John, gave the right answer. None of us is sufficient, but God enables us to do it by his Spirit. Now, the things mentioned in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Initially, sounds like responsibilities that few of us would choose for ourselves. Most of us would certainly not trust an institutionalized church to wield this kind of power. What is Jesus talking about? He's not appointing the church as his moral watchdog to arbitrate people's assets and liabilities on some kind of heavenly balance sheet. And he certainly isn't giving giving them that power, uh, giving that power to people individually. In John's gospel, Jesus is talking about sin as unbelief 
and the unwillingness to grasp the truth of God manifest in him, in Christ. To remain in sin, therefore, is to remain estranged from God, cut off. Primarily, it's a refusal to recognize God's revelation when confronted by it in Jesus. Note what Jesus says concerning the world in John 15:22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have, have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Consequently, the resurrected Christ tells his followers, and for that matter, all of his followers, that through the Spirit that enables them to bear witness, they can set people free or release, uh, might be a better translation than forgive, from that sinful condition. We're messengers. They can be part of the mission which enables others to come to believe in Jesus and what he has revealed. Failure to bear witness, Jesus warns, will result in the opposite, a world full of people left unable to grasp the knowledge of God. This is what it means to retain sins. It's the opposite of set free. He's simply saying that a church that does not bear witness to Christ is a church that leaves itself unable to play a role in delivering people from all that keeps them from experiencing the fullness that Jesus offers. We are called, commissioned, and empowered to go. We go to declare the good news that sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ and all the problems that separate us from God and from one another have been dealt with by him. And so when Paul, for example, was waiting in Athens for his compatriots to show up and he goes for a walk in Athens, this pagan city, a city full of idols, it says, and his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He started right where he was, and that's where we're supposed to start as well. That's with those who happen to be there. Who's in your life? We're the body of Christ, and we're on the very same mission to save the world. So I want to ask you to look around you, in your head. Who's in your life? Who did, which, what particular people... Family members, relatives, neighbors, work associates, fellow students, who's around you? Do they need a savior? Do they need a king? Do they need to have their sins forgiven? Do they need a new creation? Paul started with the person that was in front of him. And God opened up a much bigger opportunity. Pretty soon, other people had gathered around Paul to hear him talk. There where he just started talking to whoever happened to be there. And then a small group gathered. Next thing you knew, they took him down to the Areopagus and said, we got some other folks we want you to tell this to. And truly, 
Uh, and so Paul addresses the, the larger crowd. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this to all this by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They made fun of him. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. We want, we want to know more. When can you come back? So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you got the picture here? Here we are in John 20, Jesus talking to his disciples. Paul's not there at this point. That'll come later. The same thing happens with Paul, right? He, he becomes an apostle, a disciple, an ambassador. Could they have imagined, as they were huddled in that room right before Jesus appears, that in a very short amount of time, one of their folks is going to be in Athens at the Areopagus giving a public speech about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the very heart of Athens. And some among them believed, including one of the members of the court. Let's pray. You are the living Savior, O Christ, the only one who can truly give peace. Peace between God and man and the peace within which flows from the establishment of objective peace between a holy God and sinful man by the removal of the sin that stands between us. You are the one who has authority to send your followers to all the world. You have laid hold upon us and upon all your people and commissioned us to implement your mission to the world. You have even given your church the authority to proclaim this message. What an awesome responsibility has been placed in our hands, but you have also given the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission which you've given us to do. Pour out your Spirit upon your church today, O Lord, and give us power from on high. In our strength and in our own authority, we will accomplish nothing. Any gains we make in our own power will only be superficial and fade away. Therefore, we are utterly dependent upon you to do this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 20, 19-23, our text today, it's the first time Jesus appears to his disciples after being raised from the dead. They're hiding behind a locked door in fear when Jesus appears uh, to speak with them, and they had a very good reason to be afraid. Um, imagine with me for a moment, on a much lower scale, that our own church had been under threat from a powerful totalitarian government for some time. In fact, in our hypothetical story, your pastor was arrested a week ago and brutally executed last Friday. The authorities know that you're a member of his church. How frightened would you be today? Would you even be here 
Would you be, maybe we'd meet somewhere else so they wouldn't find us. Now back to our true story. That's what the disciples were feeling when we read this in John 20, 19 through 21. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, this is Easter, when the doors were shut or the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Imagine the back doors opening, except Jesus didn't need to open the doors. He just came in. Jesus says, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me. So, well, let me back up. I skipped over. Let me reread the text. Then the same day, that evening, uh, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Basically, he's saying, you're not going to get to stay in this room. But let's just settle down. Don't be afraid. Just as the disciples had seen Jesus calm the stormy sea, here again his words of peace to you were powerful in the midst of uncertainty and fear. Jesus gives peace not as the world gives. He gives peace that provides solace in the face of persecution and confidence in his ability to overcome the world, overcome the circumstances, whatever it is you're afraid of. Like children, we are all afraid of many things, and from our perspective, life is full of uncertainties and dangers, both real and imagined When there was darkness, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so too, when Jesus says to us, let there be peace, there is peace. He's the same one that said, let there be light. And there was light. And so when he says, let there be peace, he is indeed the Prince of Peace. And so he comes to his disciples again, and he comes to us at this table, and he says to us again, peace to you. As the Father sent me, so I also send you. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we offer up our united praise at the footstool of your divine majesty. And we thank you that you preserved us during the night and raised us up again to see the light of another morning. And now that we are about to return again to our ordinary duties of life, After a day spent in your more immediate worship and service, enable us to go forth with an earnest desire to live under the influence of your heavenly grace and to go forth into your mission. May it be a blessing to us and to those around us that we have spent a day in corporate communion with you and your people. May our minds continue on the things above, and may we fulfill our duties in our various positions with fidelity. As little children, we have all come to your table, Father, and as we have renewed covenant with you, may we serve in this coming week with humility and reliance, laying aside all envy, covetousness, jealousy, and sinful competitiveness, 
knowing that we are supplied by the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus, that we have been completely forgiven and cleansed, and that we start anew. Help us now to live in harmony with one another, being slow to judge and quick to forgive, even as in Christ we are forgiven. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence, the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.